in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. So what are you what are you doing now? I've gotten into producing now, mm-hmm. which has been lots of fun. I was recently in Florida, your home state. Where? where I, Palmetto. Okay. Yeah, on the west coast of Florida. Weird. Uh, I was producing a movie with uh, Burt Reynolds, Amy Smart, and a miniature horse. Is it about the horse? It might be about the horse. Is the movie called Palmetto? It is not. Damn it. No, they didn't remake Palmetto. Is it called Tiny Horse? Uh, the working title was And Then There Was Light. And this I is nothing the... to indicate that there's a horse in this film. Well, 
I'm, there is Here's something. my advice to you. As like an avid consumer of horse content. I oh, think... my God. As an avid consumer of horse content Correct. is probably a <laughs> sentence I thought I'd go the rest of my life without hearing. Love a good horse film. Mm-hmm. Uh, love looking at horses on what's the internet. Your, uh, what's your level of interest in uh, <laughs> horse content? I'm a, it's an avid interest. An avid it's, level of interest. It's high. Yeah. So you should call it Mini Horse the Movie. Mini Horse the Movie. Yeah. Okay. I will I will recommend And that's that. why yeah. I'm so rich and famous. <laughs> <laughs> you got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears like a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's back with money with gas. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and I remain, as always, bad with money. If you're listening to this, there's probably a decent chance you're a creative person who spends a lot of time dreaming about getting your big break. Maybe you're living in some tiny room in a horrible apartment where there's barely enough room for your bed. Maybe you have to use your bed as a desk and a dresser, and during the day you have your computer and all your clothes resting on the bed. And then at the end of the day, when you're so tired from your job that you can barely stand up, you have to first move the computer and all the clothes off the bed onto the floor closet, which means that when you wake up the next morning, maybe to go to said retail or food service job somewhere awful, you have to, like, hop on one foot so you don't step on your laptop or get your legs tangled in your underwear and fall in your face. It's just, like, so dignified. I lived in an apartment where the door slid open because it was a closet, and then you were just right on my bed. The bed was the whole room. So you feel real good about yourself when you live in one of those. Probably one of the most maddening parts of this, which it was for me, is that the rent on this room is more than half your monthly paycheck or your whole monthly paycheck. Maybe you're late on the rent, so you have to borrow it from your roommate who used to be a close friend, but now they hate you. Or you don't want anyone to know that you can barely afford to live in squalor, so you're just running up debt on your credit card because you figure that it's just your problem and you can worry about it later when you get cast in the thing when the thing you wrote sells or when someone sees your YouTube videos and shares them with like Zac Efron and Seth Rogen or they go viral or something, whatever it is, you're telling yourself there's something coming and it will make this part of life worth it. This will be the really interesting chapter in your memoir where everyone says, oh, how relatable and like humble and cool you are. But what would it be like to just skip this part? What if you got the thing before you even knew that you needed to wait to get the thing? Before the terrible, ridiculous, throwing away your 20s part where you know you're basically just setting all your money on fire every month. If you're like me, you spent hours and hours wondering what it'd be like to switch places with someone like that. Somebody like my guest today, Sam Levine, who got cast on the seminal Judd Apatow series Freaks and Geeks as a teenager, playing the role of Neil Schweiber, a middle schooler, with a killer William Shatner impression. Oh, oh, Mr. Bones, Mr. Spock, may I join you here in the Enterprise mess hall? I'm so hungry, I could eat a triple. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Who's that? John Wayne. Oh, okay. Everybody loves Freaks and Geeks. It's a great show, and Sam was cast on it when he was barely a teen. So we're going to talk to him about being a child actor and about... How he makes money today. Sam and I also dated, so we get into a little bit of uh, 
personal information and X stuff. So don't be freaked out. <laughs> Oh my god, I can think of literally 5,000 more fun ways than blowing money in a nightclub. <laughs> Buying expensive posters. Buying expensive movie posters. Those are investments. Oh god, I'm Don't not you... I'm not having this conversation again. Why not? <laughs> That's like buying art. It is an investment. You, can you can we wrap this up? <gasps> Shame on you. <laughs> the market value for every original movie poster that I have ever acquired in my life has Great. only gone up. Great. So if I choose to sell them someday, I will have turned a profit on that investment. I don't see where there is any shame in that whatsoever. There's no shame. It's just very funny. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's nice to have on my walls. When I was a kid, my brother and I saw a Revenge of the Jedi movie poster in this catalog that sold movie posters. Mm -hmm. And we called and we were like, how much is it? Our mother gave us $20 for the two of us to spend on movie posters. And most of the posters were like five bucks. We could buy four posters. It was great. We had to call to find out how much the Revenge of the Jedi poster was. This is like 1996. You have to say why that's, why that's exciting. Because it was... Call it's the movie's Return, Return of, the Jedi. of the Jedi, and they originally called it Revenge of the Jedi, and then Lucas had a change of heart. A Jedi wouldn't seek revenge, so they had approximately fifteen hundred of these posters ever printed that were ever printed yeah. that are all wrong, and there's, there's plenty of uh, uh, counterfeits out there of this poster. Yeah, but originals that were rolled, not folded, um, are very, very, very rare and hard to find. Yep. And uh, so we called this catalog. We were like, hey, do you have one? How much are they? They were like, well, we don't have one right now. We could try to acquire one for you. And they cost $800. So to me, when you're when you're 14 years old, $800 is a million dollars. Right. And so in 2001, when I was 19 years old, just a scant five years later, I could afford it. <laughs> and the price had gone up. I think it was like 1200 bucks. For a, a mint condition rolled Revenge of the Jedi. Oh my and you God. know what? I could afford it. And Did I you said, call that same magazine? No. no you went on no, eBay. No, I went. I didn't go to no, eBay. I went to a real dealer here in, in LA. Like a rare movie poster dealer? Yeah. That's a human's job. That is a, a very respectable human's job. Wow. It's art, Gab. It's art. <laughs> Shame on you. I like the story because it is like you've come out on top. And yeah. You win, and it's like an underdog story. It was not an underdog story. It was just a story of feeling like I'd accomplished something. Did you say to your brother, fuck you, I own this poster now? <laughs> no. <laughs> but he knows I have one. One is in the family. That's all he oh, cares That's all about. he cares about. Yeah. It's not like if, when I was 14 and he was 16, we were going to buy one and then, you know, share custody of it. Yeah. It was only going to be one poster. We weren't going to get multiple posters. Oh, my God. That would be crazy if the Levine family owned just like all, just like maybe like 15 of the rare. Oh, man. Of this rare poster. Clean up on that. Clean up. So, okay. When you were younger, when you were auditioning, let's say like you were auditioning for Freaks and Geeks. Do mm -hmm. you remember if you were thinking about money? Like you were like, if I get this, I'm going to make money. Uh, Only a teeny little bit. Really? Yeah, I I'm very lucky. I uh, we I didn't grow up wealthy or anything like that. Very middle uh, class, but I grew up not worrying like some other kids have to worry, like if their parents are losing jobs mm -hmm. or whatever. I didn't have that. Thinking about you know money that I might make as an actor was certainly nothing like the driving force that was pushing me at that age. It's not like a stage parents like Sam's got to book this, otherwise we're screwed. No. <laughs> yeah, right. No, nothing at all like that. So it was like. 
all from you like wanting to act and not being like, oh, I'll be I'll be wealthy or something like that. Yes, it was all just wanting to act. At that age, it's as Kevin likes to put it, Pollock. Uh, every kid has, hey, look at me, disease, <laughs> and and so the normal people get separated from the insane actors at a certain age, somewhere around your adolescence or early twenties. Normal people are like, oh, I don't want to be fucking watching me. I just right. want to do my own thing. Whereas actors are like, more people, more people, <laughs> watch me, watch me. <laughs> and so, so that's where, uh, so that's where I fell. I was like, I was doing stand up, and I no I was, irony, yeah. yeah, I was very comfortable having a crowd watch me you know be a jackass or whatever <laughs> so for me it was not about money it was just about well if I'm on a television program everyone will millions of people will see my face <laughs> oh, I feel that way too I was just thinking about people who use like you just want attention as an insult and I was like yeah obviously yeah that's not a secret Sherlock <laughs> Do you remember at all, like, the contract negotiations or anything about, like, when you were like, oh, this is what I'm going to be making to be on this show? There were – it was little to no negotiating when they <laughs> offered me Freaks and Geeks because when you have virtually no real work and no yeah. quote, basically whatever the network offers you, you don't have much wiggle room in. Do you uh, remember hearing the amount? Or yes. Do you remember, like – Yes, I remember hearing the What amount. was your reaction? It was a lot of money, <laughs> comparatively. <laughs> Were you like, did you have any idea that that was like what networks paid or? Uh, I thought, I, I didn't realize it would be that much. And I'm not going to say the number, but it was right. five figures. Right. And were you like, that's crazy. What will I even do with that? Or were uh, you like, I'm going to buy all the Legos. Oh, no, Fuck I didn't up. think about spending any of it at all. I was like, oh, this is great. I, was, I can start like building a life for myself. I mean, I, I was just about to turn 17. So I, I was definitely thinking about college right. and, and things like that and uh and you I You didn't go like blank check like I'm going to buy nothing like that. And even if I'd wanted to, my folks never would have let me get away with that. Really? Oh god no. They weren't like, "Oh, here you go, Sam. Go out to the clubs and do all the drugs." No. And... What do you think I'm a fucking low hand? <laughs> yeah, I'll take the low hanging fruit. No, I would that would never have happened. My parents are very responsible and uh they they would never have let me do that. There's like a a financial psychologist that I talked to and he was talking about like wealthy people thinking and poor people thinking and wealthy people thinking is like, I get a bunch of money, I'm going to put it all away and I don't spend it. Right. And then poor people thinking is like, I could die tomorrow, so let's do it. Let's spend all of it right now. Sure. And I think I have like the second one. Like my problems have always been like, oh, well, I don't know. You can't take it with you, man. Like we're all like. Oh, you want to die at zero <laughs> or or worse in debt? <laughs> I think you, I always give this credit to my boyfriend now, but I think you mm -hmm. were a person in my, one of the first people in my life who was like, well, surely you have savings. And I was like, <laughs> I think I lied to your face. I was like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you, and then like, after you left, I was like, oh no. Uh oh. Like, I think now I do. Now oh, I do. But I think like that. at the time yeah. you said that to me in such an obvious voice, like yeah. you were like. Well, like, you're going to be fine, guy, because you have savings. And I went, yes, I do. Mm. And I was not telling you're the not truth. not telling me the truth. No. That's all right. And that, I think, is like, was a thing that came up later, too, like, with my boyfriend now and with Allison, of mm -hmm. them being like, 
because I didn't lie to them. And then they went, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but like your incredulous sort of reaction, I think, was like. I feel like I, I, I want to believe. And I mean, I don't remember it as well as you do. I don't want to believe. I was like, will you have savings, right? No, not like that. Anything like that. You said it very casually, which yeah. made it even worse because oh, it was okay. like, oh, he clearly thinks that this is an obvious thing. I didn't know if you were going to be like, oh, God, I can't date this person. Oh, like, come on. That's this is very irresponsible person. Right. Like, I can't. Like, I waited a long time to tell Garrett. Like, I was like, I don't want someone to be like, oh, man, I got I can't get in bed with this person. Like, that's <laughs> very like you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have been like, oh, she's of, very irresponsible. Of course not. What? I'm not a monster. But people would take it like I dated a guy in New York who had like $50,000 in debt. And I was like, I can't marry this guy. Marry? Sure. <laughs> I didn't realize we were getting hit. <laughs> no, no, no. But I was like, oh, I can't. Like, there's no... At a certain point, you're like, okay, if this person's, like, super in debt, I, there's no future. Okay, but let me ask a follow-up question to this this mystery debt. What? Was the guy, like, a doctor who was that much in debt because of medical school? No, he was a commercial actor, Sam. Have we met? Okay. Because <laughs> if you're $50,000 in debt and you're, like, paying your way through medical school, that's perfectly reasonable. No. If you are a commercial actor and you are $50,000 in debt, you have done things wrong. Yeah. You have lived beyond your means for too long. Correct. And you're waiting for that KFC campaign that is probably not going to happen. Right. And so I wish him luck and I hope he's figured some things out. No, I know. But so I felt like I didn't even have that much debt, but I felt like, oh, I can't tell people that I'm seeing mm-hmm. that I have debt because then they'll be like, oh, I shouldn't date this person. I think it makes people anxious where they're like, well, now I have to pay for everything because no. she can't pay for stuff. And like if she is buying me a gift, like is this contributing to her debt? And like what's going like I think it made people like nervous. Hmm. Well, I don't know about that. I think you you're you're um Projecting, projecting. yeah. You. I think you're projecting a little much into what other people w- would think in that scenario. Yeah. And if you want a, a real answer, uh, if 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 we had been dating and, yeah. and things turned serious and like we wanted to get married someday, and you would come clean and been like, "Look, I don't have any savings and I'm kind of in debt." Yeah. I would not have walked away. I would have been like, "All right, well then, let's look at your financials yeah, and we figure out a way to, to fix it." Yeah. And I would have helped you. Yeah. Not like I'm not saying I would have given you money. I'm saying like I would right. have helped you figure out a way to get out of debt. Yeah, I think there was like a lot of not wanting to talk about it. I was like, oh, there's this thing that everyone else knows about mm. and I don't know about it. And if I tell Sam, then he's going to be like, she's an idiot. <laughs> when did I ever judge you on anything? Never, never. Okay, so never. Don't, don't put that on no, me. No, I wasn't. I think it's just like, no, I, don't, I wasn't like, it is all projection. Right. It is all like your own. Yeah. Like projection and like, oh, my God, I'm I'm like a terrible adult. And I I also have a lot of weird stuff about like not wanting to feel foolish. Mm-hmm. So even like I'll double down or like get defensive where they'll be like, <laughs> well, obviously, you know, the population of Malaysia. And I'm like, I definitely do. Yeah. Like it's this very. Sure. Yeah. So you immediately put that money away. When yes. You got it? I immediately put it into a, a Morgan Stanley fund where it was earning a nice level of interest. This is not because I knew about it. It's because my folks told me to do it. Oh, my God. I was 17 years old. So your parents knew to do that. Yes, my parents knew to do that. God damn it. Also, to be fair, though, I had this other thing going for me, which was uh, Coogan money. So when an actor is under 18 years old, yeah. Uh, they have these laws in in SAG, but mostly the state of California, 
uh, called Coogan Laws, and it's named after the uh, late actor Jackie Coogan, who was a kid actor in the 20s and 30s. Okay. And he was very successful. He made all this money. And his parents took all of it and blew it. Oh. He had no money. He was broke, destitute when he mm-hmm. was uh, a grown-up. And so they enacted these laws called the Coogan Laws that automatically, before the paycheck even gets cut to your agent from your job, right? they took 30% of that paycheck untaxed and put it into a blocked trust fund that could only be accessed by the underage actor once they turned 18. Whoa, is that still a thing? It is. Now they automatically take 15%. I think you can voluntarily put in more. Wow. But at the time, it was a mandatory 30%. So 30% of my Freaks and Geeks paychecks, before they were even cut to my my manager, went into this block trust that only I could access when I turned 18. That's incredible. So was that like incredibly helpful? Uh, it was. I mean, not that I was blowing the rest of the money thinking, <laughs> well, at least I'll have that 30%. No. <laughs> But it was nice when, like, I'd, I'd almost forgotten about it. Yeah. And so when I eventually turned 18 and, like, signed the paperwork and moved that money into the other monies, I was like, wow, that I only worked for a year, and that was a sizable move. Imagine if I'd have been one of the kids on, like, Home Improvement. Yeah. You oh, know? my God. Like, that 30% week in, week out earning tens of, you know, 50, 60 grand right. an episode, that money would be substantial. And that's why JTT never had to work again. That is absolutely right. <laughs> no, that was worth millions of dollars of money that only he could access. It had been gathering great interest oh, all shit. those years. Yeah, They should make everyone do that. They should make everyone who works as a child do that. Oh, yeah. I guess every child that's working. Who else is working when you're a child? Uh, slave labor? Yep, great. Overseas? Give them the Coogan okay. Law. Well, this turned dark. <laughs> Did you? How long were your parents involved in managing your money, and um, helping you? Probably until I was about twenty one, twenty two. Because you know, when you're that young, even having been dealing with actual income and stuff for yeah. you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, I, I still didn't really focus too much on it. Like my checks would come in, and I sometimes wouldn't even open paychecks. Because at this point, my mother was already living back in New Jersey. Yeah. And she was helping me do all my banking and stuff. Yeah. So I would just, I knew what the paychecks looked like from the outside. I would just throw everything into a big FedEx. Yeah. And then just overnight it to her and be like, here you go. That's the last stuff my agent sent me. I don't know what's do in Do they want to work for me? <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, I think I was about 21, my mother was like, I want you to know something. I was like, what's up? She's like, I'm happy to help you. I can give you all the advice you want. But you are now officially too old for me to be doing all of your financial stuff and paperwork yeah. and paying, you know, uh, I was paying bills. Like uh, I had a, a checkbook and everything and yeah. bills would come in and I would pay them. But like I rarely knew what the balance was. Oh my God. Like it was the most, <laughs> the absolute most disorderly checkbook you've ever seen. And so when I turned, just before I turned 21, my mother like sent me everything and then flew out to LA and sat with me for days and showed me how to balance a checkbook oh and how God. to handle ledgers. You have and... the best parents I've ever heard about. Well, I have a very, my mother worked as like a legal secretary. Oh, so she knew all about she knew organization. All and... about organization. Ugh. She knew how to file everything and do taxes and all that. Mm. She was a pro. I got very lucky. And they didn't take any of the money? My folks? Yeah. No, not a dime. <laughs> this is really great. Um <laughs> Um so 
there's like this expectation of struggle in your 20s of like, well, when I'm in my 20s, I'm going to work a bunch of jobs and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to not have money and money's going to be a big problem. Right. Um, and then you, I feel like you kind of skipped that. Technically, no, I didn't have that where right. I was like so out of money. I didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm I'm not blind to how lucky I am to have. No, have I have done that. I think that you know very well. Uh, but I mean, I've certainly had plenty of friends who struggled. Mm-hmm. Did it create problems? Because I, Allison and I have some projects going on that mm-hmm. are like stand to pay us a lot of money. I've never had money in my life, and he was like the financial psychologist was like, be careful of like growing out of your tribe, like because right. you're right now your friends are similarly in the same economic group and Mm -hmm. you're going to have money all of a sudden right and it's and it's going to be like hard to relate to people or like that you used to relate to or that Hmm. i don't know you don't don't buy it i don't know that i agree with that psychology interesting maybe in a different line of work in this line of work what what you and i do since i've been out in los angeles i've been very close friends with people who live week to week, mm-hmm. literally not knowing where their next paycheck is coming from. Yeah. They might have to crash on somebody's couch. Dear friends, I love them. We can hang out and have as much fun as I do hanging out with other people who have their third house is in Malibu. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And they take the chopper over the 405 yeah. to go to work. And so maybe other people aren't like that, but I'd like to think in the creative world, in the creative arts, yeah. it's less about how much you have in the bank and just more about what you bring to the friendship table. Or I what think. you're, yeah, if, if you're like a creative, good person to be around. Right. And so the second point I wanted to make, and maybe this financial psychologist is in the same line of thinking, my parents, their entire working lives- mm-hmm. You know what you're going to make in a given year as long as you don't get fired. Right. Short of maybe, unless you're in a line of work that has bonuses or commissions and stuff, if you're working as a secretary, you've agreed to a salary, so you know exactly at the end of every week or two weeks what that paycheck number is going to be. So it makes making certain financial decisions very easy. But in the acting world, the difference between not working one year and then getting on a pilot that goes to series and runs 22 episodes, depending on where you're at in your career, that could be $2 million worth of difference. Right. And also that could go away very easily. Exactly. So I, I, it's not that crazy what with what we do that any one year you might make literally a thousand times more than you made the previous year. Right. And then the following year, 1,000 times less. You talk about like your poker playing stuff, right? Sure. Do you, is I don't know what I know from knowing you and what right. I know from like what you've heard out and about. No, Here's, not heard out and about. Yeah. You said to me one time because I was talking to you about not really making a lot of money from YouTube. Right. And you were saying that a lot of times you would supplement your income with poker stuff. That is true. And I will talk about that. Sure. OK. How did you start doing that? I learned how to play poker when I was about five or six years old from my father and my father's mother, my nana, my late nana. Uh, they taught me how to play. They taught me which end of an ace was up. And uh, and I, I took to it right away. Uh, came from a family of card players, so it was not uh, strange. And uh, by the time I was eight, uh, my buddies and I, they had also learned, I think I taught most of them, uh, we were playing for pennies and nickels and dimes and stuff. And um, so I've been I've been a cash player since I'm eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when I was 12 and at summer camp, 
Uh, I went to a, an eight-week sleepaway camp, and uh, they had vending machines at these camps, and everything in the vending machine was either 25 cents or a quarter. So if your parents gave you $10 in quarters at yeah. the beginning of the summer, you could make that last all summer. And uh, <laughs> everyone in camp had all these quarters, so at oh night we would God. stay awake in our bunks and just play poker for quarters. And, Were you hustling them? Well, to hustle someone means to... You're, you're you're pulling one over on them. You are right. leading on that you are not as good as you are. Oh, you you made clear that you were very good. I mean, in hindsight, it was like I was winning every single night. So they had no one to blame but themselves. Because they shouldn't have played with you. No. And at the end of the summer, my parents come to pick me up, and my dad goes to pick up one of my pillowcases, which is where I was keeping all these excess quarters. And he goes to pick up this pillowcase, and it must have weighed 50-plus pounds. And he's like, what is in here? And I was like, oh, it's just like some quarters I won playing poker. And he went, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> okay, we're not going to tell your mother about this. <laughs> and I got I got home and I counted it and it was well over $200. What? Yeah. And all the other kids didn't tell their parents, like, I've lost all this money. I can't use the vending machine. It's not like I took 200 bucks from one kid. No, yeah, but then they lost all their vending machine money. Well, they had other monies. I'm oh sure I was God. the one who showed up with the least amount of quarters anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I knew from age 12, I was like, hey, if you're disciplined and learn the game, you can actually make money doing this. So mm -hmm. it wasn't long after that. It was certainly amongst friends uh, until I was 18. Yeah. And then when I was 18 and living in Los Angeles, I started getting invited to home games. And that was a very different beast for me. And uh, I'd never played in, in, in real grown-up home games like that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a bit of a learning curve for me, and I definitely had one or two losing years in there. Mm -hmm. But everybody pays for their education. And uh, some people never get better and continue paying for it their entire lives. Yeah. Uh, but other people uh, take to it fairly quickly. And, and like I said, my learning curve is about two years. And so, yeah, I haven't had a losing year at poker since 2003. Okay, so when we were talking about it, it came up as like a way to supplement income or mm -hmm. like, because I was complaining about being too known, like too recognizable to right. be working at a restaurant. Boy, and do you, I know that uh, song and dance. Yeah, so can you talk about that? You, I remember we were talking about that and you said, yeah, that's why I play poker. Right. I could never, for, for a variety of reasons, only one of them is I'm. I would be like a knife in my heart if I were greeting people at Applebee's and every time someone walked in, they were like, wait, aren't you the guy from that show? And I'd have to go, no, no, I'm not. Yeah, just, it feels like awful. My name is Jeff, sir, <laughs> Jeff. Um, but so I couldn't do that because I had friends who did that. Yeah. And I'm not going to name them, but I had friends who were on shows and hit hard times and had to get regular jobs yeah. like normal people and people would walk in and ask, wait, aren't you that actor? And it would cause a scene sometimes. It would cause a scene. Or worse, they would think they're being really cool and they would snicker and whisper, oh my God, it's the girl from that show. Right. That's, oh my God, can you believe she works here? Right. It's like, you know what? It's what's not respectable about trying to earn a living? Assholes. Right. Um, but that's just human nature. Uh, so I, I could never do that for that reason. And then also, I am a terrible uh, low-level employee. I'm just not good at it. I'm I'm restless, and I would be angered by what I guarantee I would immediately identify as, like, system-wide failures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would want to be too. management, but it would be like, yeah, pal, it's your first week here. I know, I'm you that way, too. You can't be management yet. 
I think it's people think it's entitlement, maybe. That uh, I'm I, like, oh, I think I should be running this place. I, I, I would, it's, for me, it's definitely not entitlement. It's like, look, I don't need to have the job title, but you need to listen to my suggestions because you're <laughs> fucking this thing up, Applebee's. <laughs> I don't know why I'm picking on Applebee's, but. Uh, That's a, a very poorly run restaurant. No, I'm just kidding. We love you, Applebee's. Please sponsor this podcast. Um, uh, today's podcast brought is sponsored to you by, by TGI Applebee's. Fridays. Fuck you, Applebee's. Oh, wait no. a minute. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so supplementing my income uh, during the downtime was something that was important to me because uh, I, I'd always known that even when you have great years as an actor, you're going to have not great years. And to in order to not panic, you do need to figure out a way to earn other income that you can live with. Mm-hmm. I do not subscribe to the camera. Just write. Just write something. Just if you're waiting around, just write something. Do you know what that leads to? The 5,000 shit-tastic scripts I have to wade through every year. <laughs> so fuck you. Don't, don't just write something. Don't make Sam Levine read. Thank you. At 2016. If you're, you're going to make me read, at least make it something good that didn't get written out of boredom. That's all I'm asking. But that's the big thing is like, just make make a YouTube channel. Make sure. this, make that. But but in fairness, in fairness, <laughs> if you're good at that, you can monetize it. Right. If you're a shitty writer and an okay actor, yeah. the odds of that script ever seeing the light of day and putting money in your pocket, right. let's get real. Right. I mean, we've been doing this a long time. You know that's like one in, I don't know, 30 million are mm-hmm. your odds on that. And I just saw, I don't mean to call out Chris Evans, I'm sure he's lovely, but I just saw a script that he wrote or something, I guess, during his downtime. And then once, now that he's famous, they're like, oh, great, we're going to release this movie. Mm. And it like wasn't a very good movie. Huh. And it's like, that's one way to go about it. But also that is not going to make you money until you're already famous. Sure. Sure. You know what I mean? Oh no, I agree. I mean, we can talk about the you know Stallone selling Rocky and right. and the Goodwill Hunting that script. We can talk about that all day and night. Those are the absolute exceptions to the rule. Right. A thing that I talk about a lot is like the windfall of mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm just going to get this one big thing, and then that'll fix all the mistakes I've ever made <laughs> in my past. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> why are sure. you laughing? Because you know how silly that sounds. Uh, I do know how silly that sounds, but also I'm like, okay, but. Yeah. But, like, it could happen. So the poker stuff is, like... It's still a supplemental. It's never been my primary income. My primary income, luckily, has always been through acting and now producing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But poker, I always thought of it as, like, pocket money. Yeah. Like, money for gas and groceries and if I want to go out on the weekend. So that you don't have to work in a restaurant. Right. I think it was why, because we were out and you had, like, a bunch of cash. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, Sam's a stripper. It's true. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't go with drug dealer. Thank you. Oh, no. I went, yeah, I went straight to stripper. Okay. And then I was like, well, it's pretty rude. He's never invited me to watch him strip, so. Yeah, the show's terrible. <laughs> it's not a good show. No, I sit down and strip because I'm very lazy. Yeah. This and then I read, I read chapters from The Great Gatsby. It's very boring. It's such a boring show. Very artistic. <laughs> Sam is better at money than I am. And I kind of got a glimpse of that when we were together and I lied to him, if you'll recall, earlier from this interview. So 
I think he was the first person who really opened my eyes to the way that I was living was not sustainable. At the time, I felt a type of shame through no fault of Sam's where I was like, okay, I need to fix something. I'm not doing money right. And I think that was a big moment for me. And it's frustrating in some ways to hear that his parents were so helpful when mine weren't. But also, it's good to hear that it's not too late for me. (laughs) So thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your friends who are also bad with money. Also tell your rich friends who work at Goldman Sachs now but used to live with you in terrible apartments. Maybe they're still your friends. Maybe they hate you. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. And I, as always, am Gabby Dunn. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.